This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program. And tonight I'm mm. here in the studio with none other than Mike Yuseem. Hello, Anne. <laughs> hey, Mike. Anne, is that live? That's yeah. live, Mike. Right. Those are all our listeners awesome. saying, awesome. welcome yeah. back, Mike. We've oh, missed I'm, you on the show. With that, I'm really glad to be back. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you, engineer. Dion, thank you. Dion Simkin. And uh, I'm sorry to say that Jeff Klein uh, could not Mm. be here tonight, and I know that he Mm. will be disappointed because the band is back, as he likes to say. (laughs) So, Mike, um, we have a wonderful guest tonight and an interesting show. We're going to be talking Mm. about change. And since you are the uh, director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management, this show should be right up your alley. Yeah, leadership and change. Change, right. Well, Mike, on the note of change and whether or not we're precipitating a change, let me be sure to invite our guest onto the show and welcome Bill Shanninger to the studio. Bill, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. A real pleasure. And Bill, just let me say a word about you. You're a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and a global leader of their organization practice. And you're based here in Philadelphia, which is quite a treat. And you're co-author of Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change. So, um, Bill, let me just do a little warm-up of a question and ask you, what prompted you to write this book? Uh, well, you know what? It is a good question, because it's, it's been about, what, 10 years since we wrote the first one. <laughs> Very and- good. You know, sometimes these are sort of perfunctory, right, as if you'd get maybe like with a textbook or something and, you know, maybe you had like a principles of org behavior text that you might sort of churn out for, you know, a publisher every three, four years or something. Uh, We were not under that sort of pressure, but we did feel uh, pressure to respond to what our clients were telling us. So when we wrote the first book, you know, the the big idea there was companies that equally pay attention to both performance or how they make money and health or in plain language how they run the place they tend to really outperform uh, those that just went after money so that was the 2006 2007 sort of empirically based you know big idea in the subsequent 10 years most of our clients got that you know we we, we hold these events called change leaders forums and we you know do a lot of public speaking and almost always they say hey we get the idea that's great but this running the place better part that's actually kind of hard because <laughs> it, yes. requires, it requires changing the place, right? Changing how you run the place and then often changing who runs the place. Mm-hmm. So that led us to say, well, you know what? We've been tracking this sort of along the side, you know, tracking the success rate of transformations. And it started long, long ago. We didn't start it. I mean, you know, early 90s, Cutter, when he was still writing with Heskett, wrote it in his culture book and wrote about the success uh, rate of change. He went through the reengineering mm-hmm. era there were uh, a couple of the folks, then we really picked it up in, let's say, around 2000, after, or just after 2000, after the dot-com bust. And we've been doing it maybe every three years since. That number 
has not only been stubbornly around 30%, it's actually mm. going down. And we see it going down, particularly when a large-scale restructuring is involved. And yet we had evidence from both our clients as well as uh, readers of the quarterly saying, hey, did you do these things? And these things are the things that are in throughout, sprinkled throughout the book, you know, sort of the prescription of how we think it works. And, you know, when they were doing it, uh, it worked. And it didn't just work a little bit. It worked a whole lot better, like flip the odds better. Hmm. And that to us was pretty profound. And it also said, hey, you know what? We can't just sit on this and go, oh, just McKinsey clients. It was sort of a commitment to the broader body of knowledge saying, hey, we, we, we think we have something here. Obviously, there's nuance to it, right? You don't get to pick and choose. You actually have to do all of them. Uh, order matters, right? Stick, right? Sticking with it matters. But there is a better way to do it. And some of it was just, don't the people who work in these organizations deserve better? Hmm. Don't they deserve more than just yet another big, bold target? someone shouting at them louder and assuming that somehow it's all going to come together. Mm, Very good. Well, thank you. Let me ask another question and then turn over to Mike. You know, when we talk about change, we often talk about how difficult it is. So from your perspective and research, what would you say um, makes change so difficult for organizations? Well, you have to get a large group of people who otherwise would do what they wanted to do, what you (laughs) want them to do. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where the, the beauty of psychology comes into play. And, you know, the good news is we've got about 70, 80 years worth of really good work, starting with a bunch of German psychologists, on understanding why people behave the way they do. And unfortunately for us, the modern leader who feels overwhelmed, overwrought, and increasingly on the hook for a result that they don't feel like they control everything mm-hmm. that goes into that result, they often like to try really simple tropes and really simple approaches. And, of course... If they just come up with a brand new and compelling way to uh, explain it, everyone will do it. And that just doesn't work. Not even close. All right. So then, so then in a nutshell, uh, what's currently wrong with change management, if I'm hearing you right, is that leaders, CEOs are using uh, conventional tropes and not really motivating or getting people to do it, what it is that they want them to do. Yeah, look, I think that's about right. I mean, if you were to take an economic view of it, there's two kinds of capital, right, financial and human. Uh, We are long financial capital. There is no shortage of cash. When was the last time anyone Mm. actually bothered to work out weightage average cost of capital? There's more private money than you can shake a stick at. Yet all of the systems and all of the governance and all the time and attention is spent on the capital that you're long on. The capital you're short on, the right people in the right place with the right skills and the right mindset at the right time, we spend scant little time on. And then we're surprised when those people don't want to just immediately get on board with a brilliant idea. <laughs> That's great. And as I hand the baton to Mike, you're reminding me, uh, we spoke with a guest on the show who specialized in bankruptcies. <laughs> and I remember that he said that the financial distress that the organization was in was simply the symptom. What was going wrong really had to do with what you're saying, the organizational health, the running of the organization. Absolutely. So, Mike, over to you. Bill, I'm going to begin with uh, two thank yous. Thank you for joining us on this program. And above all, thank you for writing the book. In that, as you um, have just said, and of course it's in the book, um, Companies have to get it right to do it well, and sometimes uh, elementary barriers, sometimes more complex barriers have prevented people at the top from doing what 
they should be doing. And your book provides insight on what exactly does it take to get from point A to point B. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes, uh, as will Anne. You've got a, 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 I would call it a five-stage model on leading successful change. Let me begin with uh, almost an elementary question here on how you developed your thinking and your and the model. If you could just describe a bit of how you took from your experience, abstracted from it, and uh, built out um, a set of concepts around it. Just describe that if you would. Right. Well, th- thanks for asking. I mean, this um, this approach started uh, what 2001, 2002. So I had joined McKinsey in August of 2000. And interestingly enough, if you'll provide the, the diversion, in 1999, I was uh, an ABD, PhD in hmm. management student. Hmm. And I think Academy was in Boston that year, if I remember correctly. <laughs> And I was out looking for a job, and I was actually very close to taking a job at St. Joe's hmm. because I'm from the Lehigh Valley, right, just uh, north. And uh, that didn't quite work out because they weren't too super excited about me being ABD, but there was this great opportunity with McKinsey to be an academic fellow. Hmm. And, and that was in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I'd reached out to them. They said, well, actually, we were looking for a full professor, but thank you. But we forwarded your veto on to our colleagues in hmm. London. Oh, and great. That's, that's, that's remarkable. <laughs> right. And so then I had a rather strange entry into McKinsey. Yeah, and and lo- McKinsey was supposed to be two years. And then I was going to hightail it back to academics and, you know, hopefully teach OB and HR and strategy and things like yeah. that. Um, so I'm an unreformed academic, right? But I've never lost a propeller head. And I really want to be able to put math to everything. And McKinsey, thankfully, shares that, that view of wouldn't it be great if we were, you know, we were clear on what we know clear on what we believe, but don't necessarily know quite yet, and then, you know, the, the, the data yeah. and the theory behind it. So this work started after the dot-com crash, and looking around and saying, hey, there were a bunch of companies that we as well were calling excellent, and hmm, not so much, right, and what happened to them. And so that led to a good bit of soul-searching. And so we had rolled the clock back to, you know, our colleagues who wrote In Search of Excellence, Peters and Waterman and looked at their list of companies. And then we took, when Jim Collins was writing with Jerry Porras yet, and you know their list, and let's say there was around 50 companies, 51 makes the math work out really well. And when we rolled it forward, about a third didn't exist, a third were struggling, and a third were doing really well. And when we tried to say, well, what was the basic difference? The ones that were doing really well, they were hooked in on performance, but they were just as focused, if not more so, on how they got that performance. When we looked at the ones that went away, they were almost myopically focused on quarterly results. Mm-hmm. And this is not just those that had conduct problems, like accounting fraud. I mean, these were people who were, you know, they were delaying capital injection. They were not doing preventative maintenance. They were stuffing the channel, that kind of stuff. And so the big insight was, hey, um, you know, if you run the place better, you make more money or, you know, performance and health. Our colleagues thanked us for taking six months to come up with that one slide and said, so could you put a number on that? Mm. And that's, you know, under, underlying a lot of this is the idea of organizational health, and that we go into great length in describing that. And, you know, that at the time, I had a colleague and I, we had both, we had both gone back uh, to our respective grad schools and defended our dissertations in, what, early 2002. So we were probably as good as we were ever going to be on, on <laughs> method. And, uh, you know, so a lot of that was drawing from the theory at the time. And I, I'm very lucky, a quick shout out, I studied at Auburn. Oh. Right, which had Achilles Armanakis there, and you know he had written with Arpadian and really studied, and Stan Harris, and really studied different kinds of change. 
And so for me, and one of the things I was able to bring was we should separate out content uh, approaches from process approaches. And so you'll see sprinkled throughout here specific content of things we think you ought to do. But the essence of it, it is a process approach, saying, you know, we want you to start with the aspiration, right? And that's a specific choice. We don't start with deficit. And obviously, Mike, as you know, you know, we have, what, two, three generations of leaders who think you should start with a deficit. Mm-hmm. And we made a specific point in saying, one, it's negative energy creating, and two, you're far more likely to chase things that don't matter just because they're low. I mean, there's an entire right. industry around engagement and satisfaction that's based on deficit, chase the low score. And so we said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to have leaders who say, we're going to give you an aspiration, something bold, something really amazing, which is where the purpose stuff, by the way, comes in. I hope we come back to that a little bit later. But, you know, how about an aspiration that touches on all the sources of meaning? on a variety of, of purposes, right? So you can get to customers, you can get to employees, you can get to, to shareholders and communities. So that was the aspiration there, right? To start with aspiration first and equivalently on the health side say, so if that's how we're gonna really drive value, how do we really gonna run the place? What's it really gonna be like around here? Then you can take an honest look at the baseline. So that was, that was sort of the real emphasis, number one. Theoretically saying it's performance and health always, but we wanna start with where we're going, then take the baseline. And that was the first, and you know, obviously there's a ton of good theory there, right? I mean, you know, people, are, people do better when you give them coaching on both sides, right? They do, they do better when they can believe that they have a chance of doing it, you know, that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. we really tried to stay grounded into some really basic OB thinking, right? And then where appropriate, bring in, bring in some good uh, psych and social psych. Very good, Bill. I'm going to jump in here just to make sure our listeners know that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. He's Mike Useem. I'm Ann Greenhall, and we have the great pleasure of speaking to you about your new book, Beyond Performance 2.0. And I might just invite listeners to join us. If you have a question about change, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Bill, let's go back for a moment and just would you define organizational health, health for us? Sure. Uh, and, and, and thank you for asking. You know, one of the things in 2002 that was not available to us was calling it culture. Okay. <laughs> and culture, culture, was just, culture was basically verboten in 2002, right? I mean, if you can remember the contraction after the dot-com era and really an emphasis on a return to bricks and mortar and a, you know, a massive round of cost-cutting and so just sort of a retrenchment. There was the rise of the war for talent. You saw the bottom fall out of the dot-com era, and what did you have? You had sort of the, the, the power balance shifted back towards organizations. So culture was not particularly top of mind then. But if, if you were looking for what we're really getting at, it's three basic ideas. How do you align the organization but into the ways in which you set direction, the ways in which leaders make decisions, and the environment that you create you know, for people to operate in? And if you think of those as three in a row, that gets the organization aligned from idea to action. There's the way in which you execute, execute that plan, establishing accountability, making sure you really have a handle on how the organization is running and where your risk sits, making sure you have the capabilities that you need in the right amounts in the right places, and how do you motivate people uh, to go above and beyond the bare minimum. And we think those four really help for execution, so you have alignment and then execution. Those two would be sufficient, but there's been entire books written just about execution, <laughs> about the plan. It doesn't do a whole lot for renewal, though, which is our third axis, mm. which is being paying attention to the outside world. So not just head down and getting at it, but looking at your customers, your partners in your ecosystem, right? your, your competitors in particular, 
as well as the uh, government and communities that you work in. And if that gives you a radar for what's going on on the outside, then the opposite number of that is, well, how do you learn and innovate? Hmm. How do you bring new ideas to bear? Who do you involve in, in, in the innovation? You know, where do you get the ideas from, et cetera? So we call that access renewal. So in an essence, health is you know, aligning the organization, executing against what you just aligned on, and then renewing that plan to make sure that it's uh, in sync with the environment you're in and where you're going. Very good. I'm going to hand back to Mike, um, but just uh, start with the frame that you mentioned. And we talked just a little bit, and Mike may want to dig into this a little deeper. It is You do provide a five-frame uh, model of performance and health. And the first frame is aspire, then assess, then architect, then act, and then advance. So we started on aspire. And Mike, do you want to pick, pick it up there? On the first frame? Uh-huh. Sure. And Bill, it um, is a perfect uh, segue into the question I was going to indeed start with here. And that is, why don't more top executives, uh, the level where you tend to work, get it without having to find out about it? Be- <laughs> because um, uh, the, the subphrase you have for Aspire is we want to know where we want to go. And, it, and then, of course, translate that out into um, execution would be the phrase here. Translate that into actions taken. But anyway, from your own experience, what what, what kind of keeps people back from doing what, if you've been in business for a couple of years, ought to seem relatively straightforward? What do you think? Well, I, I think our desire to agree and our desire to get along and have people saying, yes, that's a good idea, leads us to a, a, you know, a level of aggregation that can mean almost anything to anyone. Like saying, hey, we're going to grow. Well, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> or we're going to win. Great. We're going to conquer new markets. Super. But w- when do you get to the level of granularity where you have to make trade-offs? When do you get to the level of specificity where real choice is required? And I think many organizations, they, are, they, in general, want to assume that, yes, we are all aligned as a top team. And so, uh, let's just say you were at Wharton, and the, the dean said, we're going to have to continue to self-fund more, so we need to grow. Well, you might have the, you, you know, you might have the provost say, well, surely that's undergraduate programs, <laughs> right? We're going to get more kids who don't need aid and can pay full freight. Mm. Well, the executive ed folks are going, no, no, hold on. These things are moneymakers for us. We're going to do that, so you're going to build us another building. Right? Whereas the MBA folks are going, hold on, we're the brand. You're going to give us the money. And the extension people might say, no, 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 but aren't we really doing good here in Philadelphia? All of them can say that they're completely aligned with, we're going to grow. But if no one's told them what the real priorities are, well, how are you actually going to get to it? And that, that, I, I think that actually is the essence. It's the patience and the discipline and sometimes the willingness to take on the unpleasant conversations to be able to look around and mm-hmm. say, that's more important than that. And, Bill, before we leave that point, I'm going to hit you with a a related point. Do you find that your own task, so to speak, the the agenda that you would bring to uh, one of your consulting relationships often has that as a very significant uh, point of argument with your client? Uh, Or or do you leave that more in the background and let it kind of come out in due course? I try to explicitly, explicitly like name get it, it. Get it out. Yeah. In, in, in fact, one, you know, often you will say, we're going to work on top team effectiveness. 
and make that group a, a better actual team. It starts with things like, are we actually a team or do we share a boss? And if we are a team, let's work on being a team through real work. Yeah. And one of the first things you do in real work is get really clear on what we're doing and what we're not doing, how far, how fast, and where. And on the health side, how are we actually going to run the place? What behavior is acceptable? What's not? How are we going to work together? You know, those sorts of things. So I try to, I try to bring it up pretty explicitly and not have it be stealth. Uh, final follow-up from me on this particular terrain. Without obviously referencing any of your clients over the years, what makes for a really good change client? A company, I think you work with the government, no doubt uh, nonprofit groups as well. And just um, without picking on one sector or another, uh, <laughs> what sends you home at the end of the day saying, I really achieved something working with this person or with this company? Yeah, uh, you know, two things come to mind, um, but there's a common denominator in each. One is the, the, the organization that's willing to take the bold move to change while they still have degrees of freedom to do it. Mm-hmm. So they're doing well enough, and, but they recognize that they're on borrowed time. The other, obviously, is the people who are forced. Now, I've worked for, you know, uh, government agencies who were, you know, on, in, in a rather significant issue. Maybe they had an environmental disaster or something like that. Now, they're, they're forced. They're a company, you know, close to, uh, you know, a, a, a financial crisis themselves. That's a little bit more tenuous because they have to. In all cases, when it really works, you have a leader who's willing to do two things. Be humble enough to say, I have not been good enough, and we have not been good enough, and the courage to do something different. Mm. And for sure, <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's just so easy and trite to say, oh, of course, it starts in the top. Yeah, kind of. But you mm. just, you know, because you, you, that's not enough. But boy, it's difficult if the senior most people are always saying they instead of me. It's a real challenge, right? So when you can open up with, I led you here, and here is not good enough, it's pretty nice, right, as a way of opening the door and saying, you know, on this one, I'm going to be out in front because I have to change what I do. And by the way, the people who work directly with me, we're going to be doing the same thing. I love that from an opening salvo to say you should not be afraid of changing because we all recognize that we have to. Because obviously it's personal, right? There's the organizations don't have body. People do. <laughs> right? Organizations only change when people change. And it's the coherence in that and the commitment to it and the sticking with it that makes a difference. We spoke about Aspire. Uh, we have yet to speak about Assess, um, Architect, Act, and Advance. So why don't we go to Assess for just a minute? And if you would, can you give us a concrete example of what that looks like in action? Sure. I, mean, I, I think the point here is in Aspire, you've laid out where you're going. And you also take a really honest baseline of where you are. Well, that creates a gap, right? And then you have to ask yourself two questions. On the performance side for assess, do we have the capabilities we need? And then we'd break this into two areas. What are the critical roles and the critical skill pools? There's usually a small number of roles that disproportionately create value. But there's often several skill pools where the people are largely homogenous, but you just need large numbers of them. And in many cases, when you're having a pivot in strategy, you don't have enough of them whether it's, you know, folks who are digitally native, coders, um, moving from product engineers to process engineers, that kind of thing, right? Large numbers of them. And on the flip side, over on health, you could say, well, that's great, that capability stuff, but actually what we have an issue with is we need people to think dramatically differently. Hmm. You know, when when organizations are trying to move from something that was previously really siloed to get scale over their knowledge or their IP, 
collaboration is an issue. Well, if you've grown, uh, you know, two decades worth of people who believe knowledge is power, and the way that they, you know, they maintain their standing in the organization is to be the person that people have to come to, that does not come naturally, you know, as an example. Very good. So, and again, maybe um, what might that conversation, just so from the point of view of a consultant, how, how might that conversation sound? If you're coaching uh, an organization, a CEO, on this particular step in the process? Well, you know what's interesting is I find the mindset conversation actually a little easier when you make it accessible. Okay. So, you know, if you say, hey, what we've just laid out for your leaders is to do the following things. They should work with the people who are their colleagues. They should talk to the people who work for them, and they should consider their customers prior to making decisions. I swear to you, sometimes it's this simple. That looks like Captain Obvious has just walked into the room. <laughs> so then you have to say, and this is, this is the part where it gets interesting. So if you say to yourself, I know that everyone we employ is well-intended and wants to do well, and they don't get out of bed in the morning and say, I'm going to be really difficult and underperforming today. Right. Then why, why aren't those people doing what seems so obvious? And that gets into the mindset part, right? What gets in the way? And we think there's three basic groupings. There's the not allowed part, which is it's not my job. That's a role clarity problem. Or that's not how we do it around here. That's a cultural imprinting problem, which can be really difficult, right, to get at. Or they'll say they can't do it because they don't have the time or they don't have the resources. And if people are telling you they don't have the time, they're too busy, or they don't have the resources, they don't have enough money, what they're really telling you is your priorities are different than their priorities. And sometimes people will raise their hand and go, I actually don't know how to do it, which is a straight skill thing, which we'll pick up on the other one. And sometimes they say, I don't want to do it. And almost always, and this is the classic, classic fear of change stuff, you're messing with my power, my relationships, my legacy, my impact, my, my chance of success. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we emphasize that one quite a bit and say you should not assume that shouting louder and just repeating yourself is actually going to get people to behave differently at all. <laughs> so disproportionately spend your time there. And the other side is just being dogmatic about saying really break down your strategy into what are the skills you actually need and in what numbers and where. Very good. Well, Bill, you know, we have a caller who would like to join the conversation, and our caller is Josh. Josh, what uh, question do you have for our guest? Hey, Dylan, what's going on? My name is Josh. Hey, good evening. Hey, uh, so, yeah, so I guess my question is, coming from a future leader standpoint where I am now, uh, I see this kind of like a, a divide between future leaders and current leaders, you know, um, Whenever you get hired on in any position, they're always like, oh, we're looking for someone that has all these qualities and skills of a leader, right? And then when you get into that position, you're a, you're a subordinate. You're not a leader. And so you're not really hired on to be a leader. You're, you're hired on to be able to replace current leadership or at least, you know, uh, mesh with that leadership. And I guess what I'm um, quite unsure on is how I, you know, how I can actually make that, that leap, if you will. Because uh, a lot of times I find that, uh, you know, the, the – qualities that I consider to be leadership qualities, like being reliable, being, you know, dependable, being loyal, those kind of qualities, just while you may possess them, it seems like uh, uh, the little things, you know, the little things that everyone, whether you're a a future leader or a current leader, like fails to like get after a few times. um, Those are the things that are kind of keeping me back. So I'm trying to figure out a way to kind of like, you know, you can't, you can't change the little things, right? And there's always going to be people that are, like, harping on the little things and for whatever reason. And I need to find a way to kind of, like, get over that hump so I can, you know, take the reins and then do what I have to do. Josh, thanks so much. That's a, a nice question about the difference between a current leader and a future leader. So, Bill, what would you say? 
Well, look, I had two thoughts. One, the, the latter half of that around around attributes. I would say that there are long-standing attributes that everyone wants. You need to be smart enough, not a rocket scientist. <laughs> and there's a personality construct called conscientiousness that breaks into work achievement and dependability. In short, you got to want to win, and you got to do what you say you're going to do. If you can have that, and you, you can be open and agreeable and working with the people around you, I think you're going to do okay. Right? And that's just, let me get that one out there. That's, you know, hashtag selection matters. But the part that you were describing, I, look, I think increasingly the way organizational, the trend mm-hmm. in organizational structure is less layer, less uh, layers and broader spans. And increasingly, uh, teamwork, particularly with the move towards, you know, agile ways of working, where teams are formed and unformed, basically project work, a lot of project work. So the extent to which you can showcase leadership as a behavior, both in how you align others around a vision, how you, make, how you take, take into account everyone's strengths to get things done, how you show the ability to both influence when you don't have formal authority, all of those things, interestingly enough, I think are more important when you're very senior than relying on just formal authority. Many, many very senior leaders have actual little real authority. I realize it sounds like an oxymoron, but they don't, particularly in distributed organizations. They really do rely on others through, in, uh, through influence and or you know, fiat authority, not actual authority. Mm, such a great point. And Mike, I'm going to hand the baton to you. <laughs> Bill, we're beginning to see the uh, end at our particular tunnel here, and I did want to take the issues we've talked through so far this evening and go back to what I had referenced at the start of the hour, and that is this remarkable document that came out from the Business Roundtable. And to make that very tangible or into a very tangible question, let's say with one of your customers, one of your clients um, next month, uh, they walk into a meeting. They're kind of waving the document in your face, uh, saying something like this. It's been tough enough making shareholders satisfied. <laughs> and now i got to get to at least four other constituencies. i got to figure out what the balance is. I need, I guess, different kinds of directors, different people in the C-suite and so on. Anyway, without putting you too much on the spot, um, do you want to run out the, the the door, or do you got? How how would you work with a person if yep. if you don't throw up your hands? Well, as you can imagine, we've been uh, rather tuned into this as well since that came out. Um, the topic of purpose has been becoming increasingly uh, important. I think where there's an interesting opportunity is to stop treating purpose separately as it's currently being handled. So there's a group that is treating it on the organization level which was more what came out this week. And, you know, for some reason, classic mission, vision, and values has gone out of favor in terms of a label. I mean, back in the day, we would have taught mission as the reason we exist, vision as what awesome looks like when we get there, and values as the things that we hold true that guide our decision-making. Sure, <laughs> so Mike, great. You, I'm sure you discussed that many, many times in many classes. Yep. Okay, purpose has seemed to have transcended now some of that, right, particularly the mission part. That's fine, and I love the idea of the multi-stakeholder approach. I think that's appropriate, particularly for public companies, you know, because public companies are often most likely to have a relationship with the uh, community around them and governments. So you think that's appropriate, and they're under pressure from employees. So the idea of, of you know consumers, employees, the communities they're in, governments, and shareholders makes sense. This still doesn't address the enormous amount of capital that sits in, in private companies. Right, I mean, it splits decidedly towards private, but it's a good start, right? No, no doubt about it. Particularly when you can bring pressure from employee in the battle for employees and the battle for uh, consumers. 
So one, I think it's a good idea, frankly, right? And I and I think it can only help on a variety of fronts. Do you remember the old, the old corporate social responsibility research used to used to really have a hard time finding relationship between those that engaged in CSR and profit, you know, or share or, or share price. And the rare times they could find it was when a company would explicitly state why they were doing good. Hmm. They've signposted, and it was something that actually mattered to their consumer base. You know, whether you had people who were outdoor types, or they sold outdoor goods, or you know, they made salad dressing but gave back to the communities they were getting it. But there had to be a linkage between strategy, action, and then the corporate social responsibility. I think there's something there here. But we're just asking, we're asking people to be a little bit broader and think yeah. about, you know, all, all <clears throat> the stakeholders. So I love that idea for the, for the organization level. I think the part two here that will be really interesting is on an individual basis, can we help employees who are more facile at describing meaning and describing what they want out yep. of life yep. and help them figure out what part work plays in it? Because we have this interesting conundrum. You know, ch- organized, uh, organized church or religious activity is down. Marriage is down. Civic participation is down, right? So people increasingly get a significant amount of their identity from their profession, not necessarily their employer. So there's an interesting opportunity for organizations through both attraction and retention and employee experience to show how purpose can align across uh, the O, the org, and I, the individual. And I think that is a huge opportunity right now. Bill, a a quick uh, kind of attached question is this, going back to our caller of listeners who are um, taking in what you're saying here and perhaps uh, looking at your book uh, later on, as they begin to prepare themselves for a world that's probably going to be somewhat different from what we've seen over the last 20 years with the primacy on shareholders, certainly among large public, publicly traded companies, significantly down, what career advice would you have for young, aspiring leaders in this brave new world? No, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the, the easy one would probably be be digitally native, you know, and, yeah. you know, but I think that's a bit, honestly, I think that's a bit trite. I mean, every every generation has had a skill that's been, you know, de rigueur to what, 25 years ago we were saying, you know, be good at lean and be good at six, and that was became quantitative. So every generation is going to have that. I think that's table stakes. I do think there's something here to say the days the days of command and control, I think, are by and large over, and that you will need a coalition of the willing to get anything done, and you will likely need to learn how to get things done without any actual real authority. And so if you can work on that from the earliest moments, whether you're volunteering somewhere, you're in an organization, you're on a team, you're in a fraternity or sorority, it doesn't matter. If you can take those skills and get people who otherwise would do something that they wouldn't do (laughs) just because you've organized them, you're set up for success which immediately bleeds into selection, right? Look for biodata that shows mm-hmm. people who can do that with no real authority, and you have the potential for a real leader. Mm, that's great. Let me jump in and just remind listeners you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. He's Mikey Seam, and together we're speaking with Bill Shanninger of McKinsey about his new book, Beyond Performance 2.0. And if you'd like to join Josh, our previous caller, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866, and you can join the conversation about change. Mike, I just have to chime in that I'm feeling a little bit cheered here (laughs) because, you know, as someone who... 
um, you know, I'm here in a wonderful organization. This is a large university. I see myself as a small fish in a big pond here. But it turns out that I don't have to have so much positional power. I do not need to be the president of the university in order to make a difference. And and I will say from across the table here, <laughs> you do get things done. So, oh, so there you. it is, affirmation to the point. And it's a great point from Bill. Really important. Really important. And I'm also cheered, if I may say, now I know this is, show is not about me, but enough about me, more about me. I'm delighted to hear that openness, agreeableness, conscientiousness. Yeah. Now, Bill, you should know that if Jeff Klein were here, he would call me Slacker. That's my nickname. <laughs> It doesn't fit. But it, <laughs> that's what, it's that's what they say. Yeah. Yes, but now back to you for a moment, uh, Bill. We've talked a bit about aspire and assess. Let's talk about architect. And when you talk about architect, you're speaking about what do we need to do in order from you know from here in order to get there. So say a little bit more about what you mean by architect. Yeah, the hope here is that you you know most organizations aren't hitting pause and shutting the whole thing down while they're working on transforming it, right? They actually do still need to be a going concern. So in that model, that means you've already consumed a lot of the capacity. So what do you do to help simplify what they're currently doing and also deploy the remaining capacity towards how you're trying to change it? That means you have a finite number of slots to spend on what you do. So in both performance and health, you have to be thoughtful and prioritized. On the performance side, you know, we use a tool that's very simply called the placemat. Yeah, I saw that. that. <laughs> that's you know that's intended to be if you were at a diner, hmm. right? And you were trying to communicate to someone what you're doing. If you can't flip the placemat over, and simply draw out, here's the big idea, here's the four or five work streams, and here's the initiatives that sit underneath each of those, and that's kind of how it all hangs together. So when you finally get around to asking someone to work on an initiative or a work stream, they can understand it. If you can't explain it that simply, it's too much and it's too complicated. <laughs> That's great. Um, Mike, you know, when I hear Bill talk about this, I'm uh, reminded a little bit of some of your conversation with your dear colleague, Harbir Singh, and strategic leadership, and uh, how we are both thinking about strategy and leading at the same time and using layered leadership up and down the organization. So I'm I'm thinking, and is this the case, Bill, that when you talk about architect, how we get from here to there, that this is something that certainly be, perhaps begins at the top, but is not limited to the top? Oh, absolutely not, right? I mean, all you need, that, that's an impetus, but it's, it's, or they say it's necessary, but not sufficient, not even close. And in fact, if you, if you were to think about it, well, like we think there's four basic conditions that make it likely that someone will think uh, it would change how they think and change how they behave. Now, we call that the influence model, right? That's a really snappy title. That's actually one of the iconic thing, pieces of IP. Uh, we created that one in 2002, and it's stuck for a long time, and it's, it's wonderfully well-researched, which I feel good about, that, you know, there's, there's decades and decades of good social scientists, who, you know, who we can base it on and say, we know this works. So the four things are really simple. People have to understand what you're asking them to do, and have some conviction behind it. Think of the old commitment research, mm-hmm. you know, the old Meyer and Allen stuff. We don't need everyone to be a fe- uh, have effective commitment out of the gate. We don't need that. But, you know, at a minimum, you need enough that they're going to try it, continuance. And ideally, they see the people around them that they think are their group also doing it and feel some normative need to do it. That's enough. Just at least get it going. Often that takes the form of a story. But we also discovered for most organizations, the cascade is brutally broken. What the leader says bears almost no resemblance to what people at the bottom hear. 
So increasingly, we've been mm. tapping into and trying to model the social network. Right? A simple question like, who do you go to to figure out what's going on around here? Give us up the 10 names, and then every name that comes in, if it's new, gets the same question. It's remarkable how you can map the water cooler. And the, <laughs> minute, you, the minute you can do that, well, now you know where to go to start pumping information into. Bill, I've got a final question, really in an indirect way, picking up on what you've just said. Uh, and it goes to the fourth stage in your change model here, which is to act. We've got to manage the journey. We've got to get from here to there. Um, and a couple of phrases we all use to describe people who are good about that are, number one, that person has a bias for action. We've often heard that. Uh, number two, it's a person who can really kind of take charge and get things done. We want both. I can't imagine a world of uh, people producing products or, in our case, teaching classes who aren't pretty good at taking charge and they've got a bias for action. And I ask that because I, I think I do know this correctly. You're in a world where you're optimistic that people can get better at what they're doing through, this is where the question is, through steps or actions or thinking about it or looking at the research. In your own experience, here's the question, in your own experience, what seems to most animate people who have been not slackers, uh, the term that <laughs> Anne used, but uh, th their cycle time a little bit too slow, um, they're, they've got a bias for action, but you know they can up it, um, they can make for a better game. What, what really helps people accelerate themselves in that, in that particular sense of acting? That's a great question. I mean, so I, 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 if you bear with me for 30 seconds, I'll give you an interesting example. When we do these change leader forums, and let's say we're doing it for one company, I will say, hey, let's try something different because we're trying to tell the whole organization to think and behave differently. So why doesn't someone come up here and do a cartwheel? <laughs> and they will invariably look at me like I am a complete nut. Right? And often it's after lunch, and they'll think, like, are you, on, are you feeling okay? Is your blood sugar low? <laughs> then once I assure them that I'm not, then I'll, I'll say to the person who's the senior most going, well, you think it's a good idea, right? This is the kind of role model I need. And they'll say yes. So we'll get a few of them to get up and do it. Those are the early, those are the early adopters. Those are people who try almost anything because that's who they are. You get a few of them up. And then around by the time you get a few of them up, you start looking at the leader going, okay, so you're going to do it, right? And when they get up and go, then you'll get the next wave of people who are doing it because they get a real need to follow mm -hmm. a leader. That's so great. At the point at which you hit about a quarter of the people who've done it, and they're seeing the affirmation, there's a point, there's a trigger where you will get a wave of people to go. Not because they even fully understand what you're being asked to do, but because they see the early adopters go and they've been recommended for it. And of course, you can prime this by saying, okay, blogs, hey, you're the leader. You see this. Those are your early adopters. Those are the ones you ought to be given the leadership roles to. Right? And they start getting recognition, and, yeah. get, and then you'll get a wave. And then there'll be ones that, towards the end will say things like, why do I have to do this? What's in it for me? Are you going to help me do it? Right? Who else is doing it? Yeah. That is, that, they actually give you the elements of the influence model. Help me understand it. What other important others are doing it? Can you help me do it to make sure I have a chance? And can you either reward me or make the rules easier to do it? So they give you the influencing tactics. Bill, I've got after a... all that, you get a small group that won't do it, and you never force the issue because that's real life. Yeah. It's just important <laughs> to surface them. You know? Bill, you make two great points yeah. here. I'm going to just bring them out as we begin to close down here. Number one, Nothing like seeing what you're talking about in a room. Experiential <laughs> learning, we, yes. we, a huge emphasis uh, on that. 
Uh, and number two, the power of a first mover, right? a first adopter, uh, but it has to be visibly displayed. And so if you uh, – if, if I'm a, a client at this point, I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to head back to my office and I'm going to get a few people to get out front, start doing things, talk about why we're doing it on the premise that uh, the human condition – does propel a lot of people forward when they see it, even if they uh, don't hear it well. Once they see it well, they they understand why it's well. So thank you on that. That's yeah. uh, an insight I'm going to walk off with uh, myself. All right. Now, Bill, last question because we're coming up to the close. Um, your last uh, frame is to advance. How do we continue to mm. improve? And I'm going to come full circle here to the point you made before the break. How do we have the? How do we acquire the humility to know that we've gotten an organization, a group, a team this far, but we can go farther? And how do we then muscle up the courage to make it so? Yeah, great question. I mean, look, I think what do people see every day when they're at work? They see how decisions are made. The process, how processes are roll, rolled out and or employed, and who is leading the organization. So through the course of the transformation, as soon as you find something that works, you should be institutionalizing it immediately. So if you come up with a, uh, leadership behaviors that you know are important, don't just talk about them and put them on a poster. Immediately change your selection criteria and your appraisal criteria. If you're talking about giving people more degrees of freedom and a, dis- a different approach to risk, change the rules so that it makes it easier for people to live that. Like, you know, if you talk about having people act like an owner and then require 10 signatures to hire an assistant, that might be inconsistent. <laughs> Very good. So it's, it's make the system consistent with what you're asking that and bake it in right away. There's also just a good bit of much, much more rapid cycle learning. If you try something and it doesn't work, stop doing it. <laughs> Very good. Really. Just stop. (laughs) All right. Well, I wrote that down. Yeah, I did, too. Bill, I really want to thank you so much for joining Mike, Yuseem and me and Greenhall tonight on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And and Mike, I don't know if the producers have told you this, but I was so enthused that you could make it. I mean, long, long ago as a uh, as a young Ph.D. student, when I was genuflecting to folks like you and Bob Lydon and Steve Kerr. And it's just, it's, uh, it's great. And it was a real treat. So thank well, you. Bill, thank you on that. And listen, thank you for not only being on our show, but for writing a superb book about a topic that's going to be on everybody's mind next five years unequivocally. Very good. Thank you. All right, thank now, you. Now, Mike, we have just one minute. Uh, do you have, you know, we like to do an after-action yep. review, just one thought in uh, reflection. All right, Anne, here's my 30 seconds. Okay. The first part of the show, we talked about, Bill talked about being humble. Yeah. I've not done enough uh, well for you, even though I'm the leader of the organization. And then having the courage to change to what you've not done. So humility and courage, a, a two-sided uh, yin, yin and a yang that underlies leading change. Oh, I'm right with you, Mike. That stands out Hmm. for me. And I will also say that I so appreciate the point about influence as opposed to positional authority. And if Jeff Klein were here, I can hear him say that positional authority is very limited and scarce. You have the ability to punish or reward, but influence has to do with relationships and Mm -hmm. it is potentially infinite. So I think that that can give heart to all of us, no matter where we are in the, in, uh, in the organization, whether we're an absolute newbie right 
you know, on our first onboarding day <laughs> or whether or not we're at the very top, you know, and I'm sure at the very top uh, people appreciate how limited their authority is and how important it is to exercise influence. Well put, and leadership from all points of the compass. <laughs> Absolutely. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 